If I say the words church discipline, what comes into your mind? Well, if you're new to church, maybe nothing comes into your mind when I say those words. But if you've been involved in church for a while, and especially if you're a church member, what comes to mind when you hear the words church discipline? Maybe you think of awkward church meetings, painful announcements about someone in the church. Maybe the words church discipline make you think of the church leaders finding somebody out and dealing with their sin publicly. But I would suggest to you that those public things are actually supposed to be very rare. And yet, the Bible expects church discipline to be going on all the time. Every day, in fact. How so? Well, the Bible calls God's people to self-discipline. Daily self-discipline is intended to make cases of public discipline very rare. When a man or woman commits themselves to Christ, the Bible calls that man or woman to own their commitment. We often hear about people needing to take ownership of their decisions, meaning they need to take responsibility for their decisions. If you want to lose weight, for example, you have to own that commitment you've made by doing something about your weight. As I said, if we call ourselves followers of Christ, the Bible calls us to own that commitment through the way we live. And in fact, the call for God's people to own their commitment did not start with the New Testament church. Equally, in the Old Testament, those who claimed to be God's people were called to take personal responsibility for living as God's people. We're going to see that as we turn to the book of Deuteronomy, to a passage which calls God's people to own your commitment. It looks like I'm dependent on you this morning, Emily, so I'll try to look at you at the right time. Uh, The background to this is that last week at the end of chapter 26, we heard how Israel declared their commitment to God, and God declared His commitment to them. Next time in chapter 28, we're going to hear more about God's commitment to Israel. But first, today in chapter 27, the Israelites are called to own the commitment they have made to God. So if you turn there, uh, please, it's page 203 in the church Bibles. I don't have the uh, page number for the larger print Bibles, but it's Deuteronomy chapter 27, and we're going to read uh, this whole chapter. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law. When you've crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. When you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. 
Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool on them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with stones from the field and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones you have set up. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, Be silent, Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God and follow his commands and decrees that I give you today. On the same day, Moses commanded the people, When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice, Cursed is anyone who makes an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of skilled hands, and sets it up in secret. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who dishonors their father or mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who leads the blind astray on the road. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who has sexual relations with any animal. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who sleeps with his sister, the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who sleeps with his mother-in-law. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who kills their neighbor secretly. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who accepts a bribe to kill an innocent person. Then all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Then all the people shall say, Amen. This is God's word. And it describes a ceremony that is to take place once Israel has crossed the Jordan River into the land of Canaan. And a ceremony, of course, is never meant to be just a ceremony. Ceremonies are intended to point beyond themselves to something significant. 
And there are two striking aspects of this ceremony that call the Israelites and us to own our commitment. And if we're going to grasp the first striking aspect of this ceremony, we need to think back to what we've seen so far in Deuteronomy with regard to God's word, his instruction. Earlier in the book, we heard how God's instruction came specifically, first of all, to Moses. God gave Moses two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Those tablets were inscribed by the finger of God, we were told, and they were put into Moses' hands. And then Moses preached a God-given explanation and application of those Ten Commandments. That is essentially what the book of Deuteronomy is. So Moses was given God's word, and then we were told the Levites were to be the custodians of that expanded word of God. They were given charge of the master copy of God's instruction through Moses. They were to make sure that copy was preserved, and that involved not just taking care of the scroll it was written on, it involved teaching it to the people as well. So both Moses and the Levites had to take God's word seriously. They had to know what it said. They had to know what it meant. They had to take it in. They had to own it. And we learned Israel's king was to do the same. At this point, they don't have a king. But in the future, when they do, the first responsibility that king has is to make his own handwritten copy of God's instruction. He's to borrow the Levite's master copy and make his own copy. And the king is to do that, not to prove what lovely handwriting he has. Deuteronomy chapter 17 says he is to do it so that it will be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of God's instruction. Israel's king is not to leave it to the Levites to preserve God's word and make it their own. He is to be personally involved in preserving it and making it his own. Moses, the Levites, the king. They're all to own God's word for themselves. It is their responsibility to learn and grasp the length and breadth of God's instruction. And having reminded ourselves of that, now we're ready to get the significance of what we read in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 27. Look carefully at those verses again. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people... Keep all these commands that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God is giving you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. And down in verse 8, the command is repeated. You shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones you have set up. 
According to verse 1, this command is for the people. Not just for the Levites, not just for the king. At the end of chapter 26, remember, all the people have declared that the Lord is their God. That they will listen to him, that they will walk in obedience to him. And so now the people are challenged, make God's word your own. We could have that up on the screen. Make God's word your own. It's not just for leaders, preachers, and parents. And the way the people are to make it their own is to set up some large stones. We're not told how many, but given what comes further on in the passage, we're probably to think of 12 stones, one for each tribe in Israel. And the command to set up the stones suggests there to be pillars, there to be tall stones that stand vertically. And they're big enough to hold all the words of this law, apparently meaning all the words of Deuteronomy. If you've ever been to the British Museum and seen ancient writing on stone, and there's lots of it preserved there, if you've seen any of that, you will know ancient people could fit plenty of words in a small space. The writing on those things is tiny. But still, these pillars would have to be big, substantial things on which the people will make their own copy of God's Word. They're not to say to themselves, I don't need to worry about getting God's instruction myself. The Levites will take care of that. They'll teach me what I need to know. It's not just the king who needs to learn the length and breadth of God's word. All God's people are to do that. And not just this one generation of God's people. Notice how the words are to be written. Normally, words would be etched or carved into stone. But the instruction here is to coat the stones with plaster. We're told that twice in verses 1 to 4. The plaster would have been made from lime, and it provided a smooth surface to write on. So the writing will be in ink or paint of some kind. Now, I'm no expert in the properties of ancient plaster and ink. But how long do you suppose this writing is going to last on those pillars? Out in the open air all year round. How long do you think it'll last? A few years, maybe? Before the weather wears it away? So why not tell the Israelites to carve it into the stone so it lasts for generations? Well, surely the point of doing it this way is that each new generation is going to have to repeat this. They cannot rely on the previous generation's commitment to learn God's Word. They will have to re-coat the stones with plaster and make their own copy of God's Word. And the next generation will have to do the same. And the next generation. So yes, this initial ceremony where the stones are set up, along with the altar that's mentioned, it is a one-off ceremony to be carried out when Israel enters the land. 
but it is also set up in such a way that each new generation has to personally own their commitment to the Lord. We've already seen they can't rely on the Levites' commitment. They can't rely on the king's commitment. And now the impermanence of this ink on plaster sends the message that the people can't rely on their parents' commitment either. And so can you begin to see the application for us today from all this? God's Word will do us no good if we don't personally read it, pay attention to it, and consider what it means. Yes, church leaders have an important part to play in leading us according to God's Word. Teachers have an important part to play in presenting it to us clearly. Parents have an important part to play in setting an example of enthusiasm for God's Word. When we were away in the summer, I was chatting to a grandfather who told me his grandson, who's probably 12 or 13, his grandson reads a chapter of the Bible every morning before he goes to school. And when the grandfather found that out, he asked his grandson, why do you do that? And the grandson said, oh, I noticed that my dad does it every morning, so I decided to do it too. Parents, your example of either enthusiasm for God's Word or disinterest in God's Word, your example will have an impact on your kids. So, are you comfortable with the example you are setting in your own attitude to God's Word? When it comes to making sure God's Word is alive and well among God's people, the example of parents is important. And the work of leaders and teachers is important. But the most important factor is you and me. Are we going to own God's Word for ourselves? Or are we expecting to live off our parents' interest in God's Word? Are we expecting to live off our preacher's study of God's Word? Are we expecting to live off the work our church leaders do to make sure we're going in the right direction as a church in accordance with God's Word? Yes, those other people may have spent more time studying God's Word, they may have more experience of applying it. They may be ahead of us in those things. But if we've made a commitment to follow Jesus, aren't we making a mockery of that commitment if we don't personally get involved in making his word our own? Seeking as best we can to know it better and understand it better. Give you a couple of examples of how you might progress in doing that. You could watch the videos produced by the Bible Project. There's one video for each book of the Bible. They give you a great start in understanding the book before you read it. Those are all available on YouTube. Just type in Bible Project and the name of the book you want to watch. You could get a straightforward study guide on that book of the Bible. We could have the next uh, slide. 
For example, this series produced by the Good Book Company. They're called Hebrews for You or First Peter for You. The one on the screen is Psalms for You. They haven't done one in Deuteronomy yet, but there are about 30 books of the Bible available so far in that series. They're manageable, helpful guides to get the most out of what you read in Scripture. Over time, you could work your way through all of them. Or there are daily Bible study notes like the Explore Notes produced by the Good Book Company. They give you a short passage to read, a couple of things to think about. There's a version for teenagers called Engage, which does the same thing. I'm not getting commission from the Good Book Company. Their stuff just happens to be very well done and useful, I think. Choose what you're going to do. Then, equally importantly, choose when you're going to do it. Not just sometime, not just whenever I get a chance. You probably wouldn't take that attitude to getting your dinner every day. Most of us are committed enough to our dinner that we make sure it happens. So do the same thing with feeding on God's Word. Not many people are called to be Bible scholars or Bible teachers, but if we have made a commitment to God, if we say we belong to Him, then we're all called to own that commitment by continuing to grow in our knowledge of His Word. Not just through what others feed us, as important as that is. We will want to grow through our own personal study as well. So will you take that challenge to heart? Whatever stage you're at, and will you press on to know God's Word better than you already do? That's the first part of the ceremony. But if we've been following along with Deuteronomy for any length of time, we will realize that knowing God's Word is only half the story. Sixty-five times this book challenges us, be careful to do what God's Word says. We don't read and learn God's instruction so we can impress people next time there's a church Bible quiz. We read and we learn so we can put it into practice. And that's what the second half of the ceremony is about. As they call us to own our commitment, verses 9 to 26 challenge us to obey God's Word, even when you could get away with disobedience. Back in verse 4, we heard that the stone pillars are to be set up at a place called Mount Ebal in Canaan. And now for the second part of the ceremony, another place is mentioned alongside Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. And if we have a map on the screen, and we zoom in on the map, and then one more time, you can see there that those two mountains are actually very close to each other. They are right in the heart of the land Israel is about to inherit. In fact, if you draw a line from Dan, that's the northernmost point of the land, all the way down to Beersheba, the southernmost point, Ebal and Gerizim are at precisely the midpoint of the land. And we're to imagine the stone pillars have already been set up, 
with all the words of God's instruction already written on them. And then verse 12 says, when you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So picture the Israelites at this point, divided now into two vast groups of people. Several hundred thousand people in each group. Facing each other, probably from the foot of these two mountains. I'm not sure where to imagine them right on the top of the mountain. Six tribes on one mountain, six tribes on the other. I'm not sure that we can pin down any particular reason why the tribes are allocated to one mountain or the other. The main point seems to be that there is an even split between the tribes. Those on Gerizim are to bless the people. Those on Ebal are to pronounce curses. Then verse 14 says, the Levites are to speak. The Levites are already one of the groups on Mount Gerizim. So this must be just a select few from the Levites who are given the job of speaking at this point. And when we read verses 15 to 26 earlier, what was it that stood out to you in those verses? Well, maybe what stood out was what was not there. After verses 12 and 13, we were probably expecting to hear curses and blessings. But if you glance down at verses 15 to 26 again, there are clearly only curses there. The Levites recite them, and all the people answer, Amen, each time. Amen, meaning essentially, we agree. This is right. So what are we to make of these missing blessings in the ceremony? The simple answer is that it is not Israel's place to pronounce blessings on itself. God can choose to do that. In fact, he will in chapter 28. We'll see that next time. The tribes on Mount Gerizim are there as silent witnesses to the fact that God has promised blessings for his obedient people. But they are not in a position to pronounce blessings on themselves. Even when blessings are promised, God's blessings are still given graciously. They are not things that can be demanded. What Israel can do, however, is show their agreement that God is right to bring judgment on them for disobedience. They can agree with God that their sin is damnable. And that's what they do as they say amen to each of the curses recited by the Levites. This is Israel owning their commitment to obey the Lord. With no excuses on their part, the people are acknowledging that disobedience is a deadly serious business. 
But what is the common element in the sins mentioned here in verses 15 to 26? There are 12 of them. It's certainly not an exhaustive list of sins. So what is it that they all have in common? The answer is, these are all sins you could conceivably get away with. With a bit of effort, these things could go undetected. There's an element of secrecy or hiddenness to all of them. Look again at the first one in verse 15. Cursed is anyone who makes an idol, a thing detestable to the Lord, the work of skilled hands, and sets it up in secret. In earlier chapters, we've heard plenty of warnings against idolatry. So this is not new in one sense. But here, there is an acknowledgement that you could get away with secret idolatry and the privacy of your own home. You could be involved in that while maintaining worship of the true God in public. Similarly with the next one, in verse 16, dishonoring father and mother. We could translate that despising your father and mother. The focus here is not on outward behavior. It's not about blatant rebellion. It's about the attitude of your heart. Verse 17, moving your neighbor's boundary stone. No doubt you could get away with inching your boundary stone forwards a little bit at a time. Slowly eating away at your neighbor's property and enlarging your own property. It might be a long time before anyone noticed. Verse 18, leading the blind astray. And verse 19, withholding justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. If you're in the position of strength, it's not hard to fix things quietly to make sure the weaker person misses out. Verses 20 to 23 deal with different sexual relationships. All of them outside of God's blueprint for sex. All of them certain to cause disharmony and disruption. And again, significantly, they are all sexual relationships you could conceivably keep hidden. Three of the four involve members of your household. Your near family, your stepmother, your sister or half-sister, your mother-in-law. In this society, they would all have been part of the large family group that lived together in a group. You'll notice that adultery is not mentioned here. That is not because it's okay, but probably because it involved a relationship with someone outside the family group. That made it a harder sin to get away with. Harder to keep it hushed up. Verse 21 mentions sex with animals. Apparently that was fairly common in the ancient world. Other nations considered it acceptable with certain animals. They used it in their worship practices and their magic rituals. But God forbids it absolutely because it blurs the boundaries that he put in place at creation. Genesis tells us God created the woman because none of the animals was a suitable counterpart for the man. 
And the larger point about verses 20 to 23 is not only that all these particular sexual practices are sinful because they're outside God's blueprint for sex, the larger point is they are sins that in this society were potentially easier to get away with. Same with killing your neighbor secretly in verse 24. And in verse 25, accepting a bribe to kill or to strike an innocent person. Taking a payment quietly under the table to either carry out a murder or condemn someone in court. So you get the idea. As the Israelites give their amen to all of these curses, they are owning their commitment to obey the Lord even when no one else is watching, even when they could probably get away with disobedience, they will obey God's word. And for you and me today, every week we gather here and we listen to God's word together, but then we go our separate ways. And honestly, You could be doing whatever you want during the week. And you could probably get away with hiding it from the rest of us. Isn't that true? Keeping up appearances isn't really that hard. And because it's not that hard, because you can get away with a whole lot of stuff, it's tempting to do it. Think about the first example on the list here in our passage. Secret idolatry in verse 15. How easy is that for us? To worship God publicly here on Sundays and then secretly live for our idols the rest of the week. Not little figurines in our case. Our idols are things like money, security, popularity. Fitting in. It's dead easy to be a public worshiper on Sundays and a secret idolater the rest of the week. But the challenge for us here is not to wait until another Christian comes poking around in your business before you get serious about living for God. Don't wait for someone to catch you in sin before you get serious about turning your back on sin. If you claim to be a child of God adopted into his family, then own that claim. Live like a child of God all the time. Even when nobody else is looking. Even when it's just you and your phone. Or just you and your friends, or boyfriend, or girlfriend. Even when you could get away with a whole bunch of sins, own your commitment to do what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Don't wait for the Christians around you to be the serious ones who come after you and challenge you. Make the hard decisions yourself. 
Don't look to others to push and pull you towards obedience and service. Take responsibility for that yourself. And doesn't this apply to all ages? If you're older, I guess the specific secret sins we're tempted to may change with age. But we will still face the temptation to indulge in stuff we know we can get away with. What about the temptation to wallow in dark, cynical moods? Do you ever feel tempted to that? Griping away to yourself about how everybody else gets it wrong. Nobody can ever do anything right. Is that the secret sin you're tempted to indulge in? It's easy to cover that up. Keep up appearances. But how many of us go around with bitter resentment bubbling away in our hearts? Let's commit to tackling our hearts, wrestling our heart down, bringing it into submission to God's Word, which calls us to focus on things that are noble and lovely. It's not likely anybody else will tell you to refocus your thoughts in that way. We can all get away with stewing in our own bitter juices if we decide to. But if we claim to be children of God, let's own that claim. Even when we're alone with our thoughts. Let's not settle for cynical, disappointed thoughts. As if God has let us down as well as everybody else. If you're a younger person who claims to follow Jesus, don't expect your parents or the other members of the church to take care of your obedience. Don't count on them always reminding you and trying to persuade you about obeying God's word. You take responsibility for that. It goes without saying that it's hard. Of course it is. But take the initiative personally to enter into that hard work in your own situation. Listening to the Bible and with God's help working to do what it says. Even when no other Christian is looking. Men, don't wait for other men to pester you by putting accountability software on your devices. Take the initiative and do that yourself. Don't hedge your bets. We're all tempted to do that, keeping your options open with online sin. Get the software, ask other men to receive the reports on what you look at in the week. Make it harder for yourself to get away with online secrets. And whatever age we are, let's not wait for prompts and prods from others before we take opportunities to love and serve those around us. Don't wait for officially organized opportunities before you take Christian fellowship seriously. 
Take the initiative to speak to someone. Get to know what their situation is, what their needs are. It's easy not to do that. It's very easy not to do it. We can all get away with avoiding fellowship and service. We can all get away with neglecting prayer. Both private and corporate times of prayer. But let's notice for ourselves how important prayer is. Let's notice the importance it has in the Bible, how central it's supposed to be in the life of God's people. And let's decide for ourselves to take it seriously. And in all of this, let's not be people who sit in church with our arms folded, looking at the person in the pulpit, and saying to ourselves, go on then, I dare you. Convince me obedience is important. If we profess to belong to this great God who has poured out his love on us in Christ, let's own our commitment by putting in the effort to make God's word our own, by obeying his word even when we could get away with disobedience. And let's thank God that as we enter into this battle, we are not alone. The risen Jesus has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. Not to make the battle easy for us, that's not what God has promised us. But we are promised that as we enter into this battle, the Holy Spirit will give us strength to persevere in the battle. And in the end, to win the battle. Our next song reminds us, when we talk about our commitment to God, and that's what we have been talking about this morning, when we talk about our commitment to God, it is always true that God's commitment to us came first. We must never think about our effort without remembering what he has already done to save us and bring us nearer to his throne. So before we share the Lord's table together, let's sing in his praise, King of Kings, Majesty. <laughs>